0: Before I start my message this morning, I thought it would be it would be good for us to take a moment and pray for to pray for those families in Newtown, Connecticut. So if you would maybe grab the hand of the person next to you and bow your heads, I'd like to do that now. Father in heaven, we come before you as your your people, casting all of our cares and concerns upon you, Father, for you care for us. Father, honestly, I don't even know exactly how to pray for this situation. Father, I pray that you would extend your, your peace, your mercy and your grace, that only you, only you can do. That you would extend it to them and you would extend it to them through, through others. Father, I pray that believers would, would rise up around these wounded and crushed families and would come alongside them. I pray that your church would engage them and encourage them and cry with them and pray with them and just sit with them and be with them through the long haul that this will be for that community. Father, I pray You would somehow, you know, through these tragic and awful and despicable and evil events, that Father, You would sovereignly work to draw men and women to Yourself. That they might place their faith in the one thing that will not pass away. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, they might also have the hope, the certain hope of eventually one day arriving at a place where no such despicable thing like this will ever take place again. Father, give them your peace, strengthen them, and encourage them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are in the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, we'll be looking at chapter 4, verse 20 through 5, 5.
1: Um, if you don't have a Bible, I'd ask you to open your Bible and, or one of those blue Bibles laying around the chairs underneath you and turn to page 1023. That'll bring you to
0: our text this morning.
1: I titled this message Inseparable, Inseparable. It's actually going to be a two-parter because we're only going to cover the first two points. We'll cover the the last two in two weeks because next week will be our Christmas service. And again, I want to encourage you strongly, bring lost people, okay? You know what that means? Not that they don't know where they're driving, (laughs) but lost because they don't know Jesus Christ. So they are
0: truly lost. Truly lost in the worst sense. Bring them. And may they hear the message of Jesus Christ. And I trust it will be just a great time of rejoicing and celebrating our Lord and Savior.
1: So that's next week. So we'll, we'll finish this up in a couple of weeks. But I, I titled this Inseparable. Let me define inseparable. I like to do that. I know you know these words, but it helps sometimes, at least for me, to define them. Always together. Okay, this is the word inseparable. Always together. Always together unable to be separated, so closely linked as to be impossible to consider separately. You got all that? That's what I want you to be thinking of when we discuss this lesson together. I remember one time I came to church. My wife, I think she wasn't there, which is very rare. This is some time back. And someone came up to me, and they they noticed right away. They said, where's your wife? I said, oh, I don't remember exactly what the events were that kept her from being there. He said, I knew something was up because it's so rare to, to, see, to not see you two together. You guys are always together. We are inseparable, and we, and we are. We tend to be that way. We seem to do everything together. By the way, baby, happy anniversary, 23 years. That's right, today. See, that's one of the privileges of being up here. You get to do things like that and score lots of points. So... So let me take a moment here and remind or inform you, if you've never heard it because maybe you, you haven't been with us, of the important background information regarding the book of the Bible that we're work, working through right now called or, or titled 1 John. Near the end of the first century, okay, so the first century is the first hundred years, so right around 90, 95 A.D., there was a group of people who closely associated themselves with the Christian community. They were a part of the community, at least externally. And this community was committed to the teachings of the apostles of Jesus Christ. They were committed to it. They were following after those teachings. But at some point, this group separated themselves from that Christian community and started doing and saying things that were completely contrary or opposite of the apostles' teachings. Things that were, bottom line, not in line, with true Christianity. What made matters worse in this situation is they were claiming to be genuine Christians, even though they were doing things contrary to apostolic Christianity. They were even suggesting that they had a special knowledge and that they alone knew how someone could have a personal relationship with God. Now think about that. That was no doubt disturbing to John's Christian readers that he was writing to, and likely caused some of them to question if their relationship with God was actually real. Because they would have been wondering if if these folks who had left, that they had relationships with, and were now saying that they really had the truth about having a relationship with God, they might be wondering, maybe they were missing out on something. So, the Apostle John set out in this letter to encourage and instruct his Christian readers by providing them a very clear and accurate picture of genuine, authentic, real Christianity. He wanted them to know exactly what it was and what it looked like in the life of a person who claimed to be a Christian. And he also exposed, in this letter, the people who had departed from the true faith and revealed what they really were. Liars, antichrist, and children of the devil. Those are my words. Those are harsh words, aren't they? But those aren't my words. Those are the Apostle John's words. Those are the words he uses in this letter to describe those who were once part of the Christian community outwardly but had now separated themselves from the community, were doing things and teaching things contrary to the Apostle's teachings about Christ, about Christianity, and yet claiming still to be true Christians. John's Christian readers would have been encouraged by this letter as they were able to measure themselves against what John said about true Christianity and see the evidence of those realities in their lives. Proving by that that they actually did have a valid relationship with God, a real relationship with God, and affirming that they didn't need to entertain the errors of the people or false teachers who were attempting at this point in history to deceive them, tell them there was a better way. Throughout this letter, as you may know, the Apostle John is continually driving home the point that there should be certain things that are true to one degree or another of authentic Christians. These things should be true, beloved. Like their love for other Christians. And their obedience to God. And their faith in Jesus as the Christ. Now, in this section that we're looking at today and we'll look at in a couple of weeks, John brings these ideas together. Biblical faith, love, and obedience. He brings them all together in a unit that becomes inseparable. Inseparable. For any person who makes a claim to have a personal saving relationship with the one true God. These things are inseparable. So let's look at the text together and we'll begin to break it down. Look at the few points. Look at your Bibles. First John chapter 4 beginning in verse 20. We'll read to chapter 5 verse 5. John writes, If anyone, anyone without exception, if anyone says, I love God. And hates his brother. He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. So this morning, if you open up your bulletins on the left side, there's an outline and you'll find there at the top this phrase, which is basically telling you where we're going. We're going to consider the truth that biblical faith, love, and obedience, those three things cannot be separated for the genuine Christian so that we might understand why true believers actually do overcome the world. And we'll talk more about overcoming the world in a couple of weeks. Like I said, we're going to just look at the first two points, but the four points we'll eventually cover are, point one, love for God and love for other Christians are inseparable. Point two, faith in Jesus and love for the Father and His children are inseparable. Point three, love and obedience to God are inseparable. Point four, obedience to God and faith in Jesus are inseparable. Now let's look at the first point. Together And to those of you who have been around here at Summit as we went through the first four chapters of 1 John, much of what I will say to you will probably sound very familiar. And the reason why is like parents often do with their children when they are trying to to help them understand something, John does the same thing in, in this letter. He continues to come back to the same points over and over and over again, but he he does it in a slightly different way. He adds a nuance to what he's trying to communicate in order to make sure that his readers really understand the truth that he's trying to get through to them, to communicate to them. So these themes are repeated in 1 John, but again, each time we see the theme, there's something extra added so we can really get the full picture of all that John wants to communicate about faith, love, and obedience, all things true of a genuine Christian, or should be. All right, so point one. Love for God and love for other Christians are inseparable. Let's look back at the text one more time. The first two verses, 20 and 21 of chapter 4. Let's read it again. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. That phrase there, I love God, I love God, you could literally understand that to be, I am loving God. I am loving God. Since the word, let me explain this to you, since the word in the original Greek language that this was written in, we have it in our English now, it's been translated into English, That word is in the present tense, and I'm going to say that a few times because there's a couple of present tense words I want to point out to you. All that means is it implies an ongoing or continuous continuous action, an ongoing or continuous action. So I love God. It's in the present tense. I am loving. I am currently in the process of loving God. There's a continual uh, statement or reality that's happening there by that statement. At least that's what's being uh, declared. So if someone says, listen, I am loving God. I am right now in the present act of loving God. And at the very same time, while he's saying that and supposedly doing that, he is hating his brother. And as we've said many times in this passage, the context is referring to, or in this book when he talks about brothers, he's talking about Christian brothers and sisters in Christ, other Christians. If that person who's supposedly loving God and at the very same time hating his brother or sister in Christ, John says he's a liar. Now, I want to add that the word hate is also in the present tense. And that's important because that implies an ongoing or continuous, just like the love is ongoing and continuous, it it, it implies an ongoing or continuous hateful attitude toward other Christians, toward your brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just an occurrence of hate that you confess and repent of. Okay? Because if that was the situation, if that's what John was saying, hey, if you've ever hated your brother or sister in Christ, then you certainly don't love God, then none of us love God. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying this is a, an ongoing present reality. Then you're a liar about loving God if that's true of your life. He says, so, so what are you a liar about? You're a liar about, in context, you're a liar about loving God. You're a liar about being an authentic Christian. You are a liar about being born of God. That's what John is saying. You are not making a true statement about who you really are. You are not a lover of God. Why? Well, it's worth noting the verse right before verse 20. We looked at this some time ago. Verse 20, how about verse 19? Just let your eyes float back up there. 1 John 4, 19. That's where John says, we love, and in the context, we love God and we love one another. We love because, and here's why we love, He, God, first loved us. It wasn't that we loved and then God loved us. The only reason we love and are able to love is because God loved us first. Christians can only truly love God and sacrificially love one another, which is, that's the kind of love we're talking about here. Sacrificially love one another because, hear me, because they have become special recipients of God's saving love through their personal relationship with Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's the only reason. Our Christian love is the result of when we exercise it, if we have it, of being born again and God's divine love filling and occupying our hearts. Those who claim to love God but consistently detest or despise or simply refuse to love other Christians prove they have yet, they have yet to personally experience God's love. And their claim to love God is nothing more than an empty and unsubstantiated claim. And because, beloved, of the blinding and deceptive nature of sin. You know what I mean when I say that? What I mean by that is sin blinds us to who we really are. It blinds us to realities. It blinds us to the truth. That's one of the first things sin does to us. It blinds us of the truth. And because of that, it is certainly possible for someone to convince themselves that they love God, when in reality, they really don't. They really don't. According to John, if there is absolutely no evidence of love in your life for brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet you claim to love God, you are really living under a delusion, a sin delusion. That's what John is saying. John explains further, beginning in verse 20, or in the middle of verse 20. Look back at your text. He says, For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, I believe the point here is if there is no evidence of love in your life in the immediate and visible realm that which you can see among your Christian brothers and sisters who you actually can look at and engage, right, that are around you, if there's no evidence of love there, then there is certainly no good or biblical reason to think or believe that you truly love God whom you cannot see. For if you really did love God, there would be a present and visible reality of love for other Christians in your life. One writer says it this way, one may possibly claim to love God and deceive others since God cannot be seen and others are not able to prove the truth of the declaration of the statement, I love God. How are you going to prove that? The visible manifestation of an individual's love for God, however, will eventually show up in his dealings with his brothers and sisters in Christ, who indeed are very visible. There's no denying it there. Another writer says this, if one fails the test of loving his visible brother... He makes it certain that he does not love the invisible God and thus proves that there is no true love in him. Let me go back a little bit to some passages that we've talked about earlier in 1 John, starting in 1 John 4, just to remind you of this same theme that John has been addressing over and over and over again and yet coming at it in a slightly different way, beginning in. Chapter 4, verse 7, there John writes, Beloved, huh. writing to the Christian church, Let us love for one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves one another, that's the context, not just loves in some general, nonspecific way, whoever loves one another has been born of God and knows God. End of story. Absolute fact. And then he says, verse 8, Anyone who does not love, love what? Love one another. That's the context. That's what he's talking about. Anyone who does not love does not know God. He's not talking about you don't know about him. He's talking about, I've said this before many times, oh, you can know about God. He's talking about knowing in an intimate, personal way. They don't have a real relationship with him. They can make whatever claim they want. But they don't know God. Why, John? Because God is love. If they have an intimate personal relationship with God who is love and yet fail to love one another, they don't have a personal relationship with that God who is the only one true God, who is love. John writes also earlier in chapter 3, maybe you'll remember this. He says in verse 13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world You know, this is the world there is this idea of those who are opposed to God, those who reject God, people and the whole system that's controlled by the devil himself. He says, hey, don't be surprised that the world hates you as Christians. (laughs) You can expect that. But guess what? Verse 14, in comparison to that, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Which is a way of saying, we are saved, we have been born again, we are walking in the light, we are in God. Why? How do we know that, John? Because we love the brothers. Unlike the world who hates you, we love one another. In real meaningful ways. And then he goes on to say, hey, whoever does not love, they abide, they dwell, they live in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You can't tell me one who continues to to, to detest, to despise, to not show love towards his brothers and sisters in Christ, at the same time has eternal life abiding in him? No. He has a murderous heart. He's a hater. According to the Apostle John, there should be no doubt That love for God and love for other Christians is absolutely woven together in the mind of God and should be in our mind as well. They are so closely linked, beloved, that it is impossible to consider them separately. It's impossible. The conclusion is you cannot have one without the other if you are a Christian. One writer says it this way, Every claim to love God is a delusion if it is not accompanied by unselfish and practical love for our brethren,
0: for our sisters and brothers in Christ. Now look
1: back at the text, 1 John chapter 4 verse 21. Just gets better. John says this, and this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. According to this text, it is God, beloved, it is God who has authoritatively joined together love for him and love for one another. This is his idea. This is not John's idea. This is not man's idea. This is God's idea. More than that, it is God's command. They are inseparable according to God. They are to be inseparable. I hope you would agree that that elevates the importance of loving one another to the highest level. Or at least it should. At least it should. For the true Christian. This statement by John about the commandment would also serve as a very strong rebuke to those false teachers or false Christians. You remember the people I was talking to you about in the beginning? The ones who used to associate with the Christian community, but now have pulled away, yet still are claiming to be Christians? It would be a false rebuke to those people who were claiming to love God, while at the same time willingly refusing to sacrificially love other Christians in meaningful ways. You've know, you got this church that's upset with what's going on and maybe they're concerned and wondering, hey, these guys have left us and they're making claims that they're really believers and they really have a relationship with God. Yet we see no real love in their life. And John's saying, listen, that's because they're not Christians. They are not Christians at all. I don't care what they tell you. I don't care how many times they say they know God. They have a personal relationship with God. They have access to God you don't have. No, they don't. Because if they did... They would love one another. And their disdain for you is evidence, There should be evidence, that they don't have a true relationship with God who is love. And I want to add this. And this is important for us. Since loving one another is a biblical command for Christians, okay? You saw it, it's in the text. Since loving one another is a biblical command for Christians, then that means it does not happen without thought, or just automatically. But is ultimately a matter of our wills. You know what I mean when I say our wills? You know, when we will something, we decide to do something, our wills. We make a choice. It is a matter of us, our wills, of us making a conscious decision. And saying, yes, I am going to love my brother or sister in Christ. If that wasn't the case, beloved, if it was automatic, all right, there would be no reason to issue the command. Right? I mean, that would be awesome. Like, you get born again, and boom, you love one another. I don't have to talk to you about it. I don't have to tell you to do it. I don't have to exhort you when you're not doing it. You don't have to exhort me when I'm not doing it. We're just loving one another. And this, I mean, Jim talks about the love, but, you know, it's still broken, and it's not perfect. It never will be till we get to heaven, but could you imagine that kind of environment where we really love one another all the time, 24-7 perfectly? Wow! There'd be no church splits. There'd be no bitterness, no unforgiveness, no anger, no gossip, no resentment. Wow! Okay, so... We have to choose to love. We have to make a willful decision to obey God's command. But it's also important to note that the Christian beloved, the person who has an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ, authentic, real, valid. According to 2 Corinthians 5.17, you probably know the passage. According to that passage, we, true believers, have been made a new creation. Meaning, A supernatural event has taken place in every person that has sincerely placed their faith in Jesus Christ, according to the Word of God. And as a result, they have, guess what, new affections, new priorities, new desires, new abilities, new abilities. And consequently... They not only, because of that, they not only are eternally inspired to love as God has commanded, but they are now able to do exactly that. Through their own strength? (laughs) No. But through the divine power, real power, not the kind we like to boast about that we think we have and we really don't, But real, true power. The kind that can love sacrificially. The kind that can love someone even when they don't love you back. The kind that can love someone you don't like at all really. Or never would even think about loving. That kind of power. You don't got that. I don't have that in and of ourselves. This is the power of the Holy Spirit, beloved. This is what makes the church so unique. It's supernatural. It's not natural. It's supernatural. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to love one another inspires us to love one another as God has commanded us to, sacrificially, willfully, consistently. It is that Holy Spirit that indwells them. Galatians 5.22, look it up. The fruits of the Spirit that any of us manifest in our lives when we are obeying the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, the first one. You know what it is? I've asked you before, what is it? What's the first fruit of the Spirit? Love. That's the first manifestation or reality of the Spirit actually in you, living in you, dwelling in you. Now, of course, you know this, our sin often gets in the way. It gets in the way of properly fulfilling this command. So you know what? We don't always manifest love toward one another as we should. In fact, sometimes we can treat each other rather badly. Is that not true? Brothers and sisters in Christ can treat each other really badly. I mean, immediately I just think of like a husband and a wife who are Christians. Right? It doesn't just have to be, it's, it's in the church, but it's in all relationships, and certainly it'll show up in a marriage. Wow. But that, beloved, is where the Christian practice of confession, repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation come in to play and are actually and should be a very normal part of a Christian's life. What is abnormal and is absolutely being rejected by the Apostle John is the idea, is the crazy idea... That a Christian can continually refuse to willingly love his brothers and sisters in Christ. Which would include his spouse.
0: Or her spouse.
1: And yet at the same time truly have a relationship with God who is love. 1 John 4. Beloved, that idea is counterfeit Christianity. You know what counterfeit is? You know, when they check your 20, you give them, they hold it up. They want to see if it's the real deal or does it kind of look like the real deal, but it really isn't. That's what I mean. It may look like Christianity a little bit on the outside, but if these kind of things are happening, that's counterfeit. That's not real. That's not supernatural. It's fake. And that's not according to me. It's according to the word of God. It's according to the Apostle John. So the first point is love for God and love for other Christians is inseparable it's inseparable. Point two is close. It's like it, but it kind of takes on another aspect. Point two is faith in Jesus and love for the Father and His children are inseparable. Look back at the text with me. First, John. Now we're starting in chapter 5, verse 1. Now John says, listen, everyone, without exception now, without exception, there's no exceptions here. Everyone, anyone, who believes that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Now let's break this down a little. What does it mean to believe that Jesus is the Christ? We'll just tackle this very quickly. What does it mean to believe that Jesus is the Christ? One writer says it this way. I like this. He says this. that It means this. That He, that is Jesus, who was born and crucified is the anointed. See, Christ is a title. So to believe that that guy, Jesus, you know, the guy that was born, the birthday that we're supposedly celebrating at Christmas, that guy, is to believe that he's more than a guy. It's to believe that he's actually the Christ. And to believe that, it means that he was the one who was born and crucified. He is actually the anointed, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior that was promised by God. He is the savior of the world. It is to believe that Jesus is what he claimed to be. He is the son of God. He is God in the flesh. One who is equal with the father. These are his words. equal with the father, not subpar, not 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 equal, not something else equal with the father. And as such demands of every believer, the absolute surrender of self to him. See, you can't say you believe Jesus is the Christ and then not surrender your life to him. You either, A, you don't understand what you just said, which that happens, and that's why we want to help you understand what you're saying. Many people don't understand that. We, under, we get that. They're confused. They just heard their mom say it, so they say, oh yeah, I believe Jesus is the Christ. Do you really know what you're saying? Either it means you don't understand, or you're deluded, you're self-deceived, or you're just lying, if you don't fall in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe that he is God in the flesh, the sovereign, the Messiah, the Savior, naturally, consequently, leads to you bowing your life before him. He's king. is king. I think we're so... Wow, this is my notes, so you know this is dangerous, but this is where I'm going off notes now. But I think in our world, in our country specifically, you know, we're so independent. Democracy, democracy, right? Hey, I love democracy. I think it's the best thing we can do in a world that's filled with sinners. I do. But we miss out on, on those other places that were ruled, or sometimes still ruled by kings, sovereign kings, where you bow to the king, where you are, you you are, you come before the king in submission in everything. We miss it. So when we talk about Jesus being the king, he's not a president. Right? He's not someone I can throw out if I don't like him after four years. He wasn't elected by the people. He is sovereign, all-powerful, king. He is Christ. And for you to say you believe that and yet not bow to him in submission, not come under his authority, is to not really believe what you're saying at all. This word believes, by the way, is in the, in the original Greek. Here we go again. It's in the present tense. So it implies an ongoing... Remember I talked about this to you? Present tense? It implies... and Sometimes these are important to know. It implies an ongoing and persistent belief in or trust in and commitment to Jesus as the Christ, as sovereign Lord, as Savior. Not just a one-time, unrepeated event at some point in your past. See, when he says everyone who believes, he's not talking about, oh, yeah, I believed once when I was seven. You know, grandma and grandpa, they took me to church like grandma and grandpas do because they want to see their, their grandchildren come to Christ, right? Because their kids are usually all messed up, so they're trying to save their grandkids. I'm just speaking in generalities. That's reality. Many homes, places. So you're like, oh, man, I messed up with my kids, but I'm going to make sure my grandkids know the truth. Right? So they take them, But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about, okay, he, he believed at seven, but then no belief. No belief. That's not what John is talking about. He's saying this is an ongoing and persistent belief in Jesus Christ. That's the idea. That person has been born of God. Beloved, and I'm going to talk more about that in a second. Beloved, by the way, this also. An ongoing and persistent belief now. That's what we're talking about. Not a one-time belief in the past, but an ongoing. It starts somewhere in your life, but it continues. It stays with you. This ongoing, persistent belief in Jesus the Christ cannot help but have an ongoing and persistent impact on your life. Okay? It cannot help but do that. For a person to say they are a Christian... But continue to remain unchanged. Continue to be indifferent or casual about their sin. Do You know what I mean by that? Casual? Eh. Whatever. Ain't no big thing. Continue to have no desire for the things or commands of God. Continue to have no real concern about brothers or sisters in Christ for that person to make a claim to be Christian and yet do those things is to make a mockery of the word Christian. It's to mock it. It's to make a joke of it. It is to remove any real significance from its meaning or from the title. Because the one who believes in Jesus as the Christ has been born of God and that belief persists That trust persists. That commitment persists and continues, and it can't help but change that sinner little by little. Transform them. Can't help but do it. Going back to our text, every person who continually and persistently believes that Jesus is the Christ, they give evidence to truly being born again. Why? Because it is the Spirit of God, beloved, The Holy Spirit that indwells every authentic believer or Christian. And guess what he does? He continually testifies to their hearts the truth of who Jesus really is. That's why they continue to believe. The Holy Spirit indwells them. And he says, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is King. Jesus is your Sovereign Lord. And he continues to tell you that. Additionally, when a person has truly been born of God, you know what? It cannot be undone. The Spirit of God does not come and go. He doesn't indwell you and vacate, indwell you and vacate. That's not biblical. But when He comes, He comes to stay. He remains in the believer once and for all. You can look up. John, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Or 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 22. Or Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Once God has got you, there's no going back. Did you hear me? Once He's got you, that's good news, guys. That's good news. Once He occupies, once He moves in, it's over, baby. He owns you. And the quicker you figure it out, the quicker you'll be better off. He owns you. His divine presence will make a difference in your life for the better. Praise God. It will make a difference for the better. As He powerfully works in your life to conform you to the image of His beloved Son and our Savior Jesus Christ. That's what we see in Romans chapter 8 verse 29. That's His goal, beloved. That's His goal. You know that? Now, if that's God's goal, who could have a better goal than God? Anybody? Anybody? So that's got to be the best goal. Don't you agree? If no one can have a better goal than God, and God's goal is to transform you into the image of Jesus Christ, then wouldn't it make sense for you to have the same goal? We always talk about goal setting. You want a good goal? Have God's goal. For you to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. For you to cooperate with the spirit that lives inside you as he works that process out in your life. A process that we call sanctification. Now let's look back at the text. 1 John chapter 5 verse 1. We're almost done. It says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever who has been loves whoever has been born of him. One writer says keep it up there for a second. You see the end, the end born of God end. That end closely connects or joins the saving faith that John begins to talk about there the saving faith in Jesus, being born again, born of God. It connects that and the loving relationship that that born-again, born-of-God person has with the Father and love for his children, the Father's children. It connects the two ideas together. So, here we go. One of the realities for those who have been born of God through faith in Jesus is that they love the Father... That is, not their human father, but God the Father. The Father who gave them new life, spiritual life. And so naturally, because they love the Father, they also love others who have also been born of that same Father. Who have also been given this new life. Who are also part now of the same spiritual family. That family that we often refer to as the family of God. Those all those who have been born of God by placing their faith through faith in Jesus as the Christ, as their Savior, as their sovereign Lord. One writer says it this way. (coughs) The born again believer (coughs) Excuse me. The born again believer, conscious that he has received new life from God, do you have that display? Okay, loves the one who gave him birth and also feels inspired to love the one in whom he sees that new life in operation. That new life referring to the life of God, being born again, spirit indwelling them. This love for other members of the family is the outward evidence that God has imparted new life to them. That's the connection. Those who have been born of the Father and consequently love Him who gave them new spiritual birth will also be inclined to love those who are similarly born. Born of the same Father. Which makes others who have been born of the same Father their spiritual brothers and sisters. That's what John is saying. So what John has done is he's taken love for God the Father and love for those who are born of the the Father... Christians, other Christians, and woven them both closely together with faith in Jesus Christ. So one writer says, faith in Christ, just another way of saying this, faith in Christ brings new birth, born again, spirit indwells you, love of God, and love for the Father, brings new birth and love for the Father. Love for the Father cannot be separated from love for others who are born of him. These things are connected. Okay, so for someone to say they believe in Christ, this is the point. Oh, I believe in Jesus Christ. Oh, you do? For them to say that, yet they do not have any real concern to benefit or bless other Christians, calls into question the reality or authenticity of their so-called faith or belief In Jesus. That's the point. Faith in Jesus and love for the Father and His children, beloved, they are inseparable. You understand what I'm saying? They're inseparable. Someone says, I love God, but does not love other Christians. They're liars. Someone says, I have faith in Jesus, but they don't love the Father and they don't love His children. They're lying. Beloved, this is why, and I'll close here. This is why, a little bit of application for you this morning. This is why it's not okay when people claim to be Christian. Now, I know all of you are in church, okay? So just bear with me here for what I'm about to say. I know you're all here today. But this is why it's not okay when people claim to be Christian but refuse to connect with any local church. Do you know somebody like that? I've met many people like that over my life. Oh, yes, I'm a Christian. Great. Where do you fellowship? Fellowship. Where do you attend a local body of believers? Oh, I don't do that. It doesn't make any sense because we need to remember that the church is not really a building or an organization, but it is first and foremost a local gathering of people who have been born of the Father. Okay, there's other people here who have not yet been born of the Father. I understand. Some of you are not saved. But the true church here is those who have been born to the Father, brothers and sisters in the Lord, the family of God. You understand what I'm saying? And it is in the local church where Christians have the greatest opportunity to serve one another, to minister to one another, to care for one another, to disciple one another, which are ultimately all expressions of loving one another. Listen, the local church is not optional for the Christian. It is not optional, but rather it is the environment in which the love that God has commanded us to exercise toward one another. It is the environment in which that primarily takes place. And I'm not talking about just on Sunday morning, but... We gather here, but we are gathered together as a local body, interacting with each other on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, coming together on Sunday to corporately worship our great God and encourage one another and do it again on Monday and Tuesday. And That's the idea. So when someone says, oh no, I don't attend any church, I'm confused, I'm confused. I don't think that's important. I, they need some information then. They need some, some biblical instruction. And if, and if they reject the biblical instruction, then there is every reason for them to call into question themselves any reality of them being in love with God or having true faith and trust and commitment to Jesus Christ. Because if they did according to John, they would want to love the brothers and sisters in Christ. How are they going to do that if they remain separate from them? Do You get it? So that's the first one. And then there are those, I'm going to get to you guys, I'm going to get to you, I promise, right? I know you guys are here, so you're like, well, that's not us, so there's no application for us. We're good. All right. There are those who regularly or occasionally attend a local church, but guess what? They do nothing more than that. Did you hear me? They attend a local church. They show up on Sundays or whatever, but they do nothing more than that. They don't really get involved. They don't serve. And they don't really care for their other brothers and sisters in Christ in any meaningful way in that local church. Should that be the case? According to 1 John, and once you've read about Christ, should that, be the, should that be the reality? Should that be what a church looks like? You come... But you're never involved in anybody else's life? Other brothers and sisters in Christ? And finally, there are those who are part of the local church, okay? And they do love others. They do. But not too much. See, I'm, I'm trying to hit everyone. <laughs> By that, I mean not radically. Not radically, beloved. Not to the point where it really cost them something. See, remember in 1 John when he was talking about how we knew what love was? Do you remember what he said? He gave the example that God sent his son, and his son died. God demonstrated his love, it says in Romans. He demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet wretched sinners, Christ died for us. That's radical love. That's us spitting in the face of God and Him saying, I am going to love you anyway. I am going to love you anyway. I'm going to love you anyway. You don't deserve this. You can't earn it. You never will. I'm going to love you anyway. And it's not going to be a small price for my love. I'm going to sacrifice my only son. I'm going to hang him on a cross. I'm going to let him be brutally beaten the people I love. And then I'm going to pour out my wrath on him that you deserve in order to save you. That's how I'm going to demonstrate my love. See, that love is radical, beloved. So we talk about, yeah, I love, I, you know, there's people they do love, and I don't want to detract from that, but they have limits. Alright? Don't push me. I serve here, but don't. You're pushing me now. You know, I'll do it if it's convenient. I'll love you if it's convenient. I'll love you if I get some love in return. I'll love you if I like you. I'll love you if it fits into my schedule. I love you if I have any love left over. That's not radical love. It's something. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 4. I know we're over. We're always over. 1 Peter 4, above all, we're going to close. Above all, Peter says, this is the Apostle Peter, Keep loving one another earnestly, earnestly, or another translation says it this way. Keep fervent in your love for one another. Now, you may not know the meaning of that, but the meaning behind that original Greek word that's translated earnestly in one translation and fervently in another, it means simply this, to be stretched or strained. So one writer adds this. Actually, John MacArthur in his study Bible, he adds this. That word, that Greek word, is used of a runner who is moving at maximum output with taut muscles, straining and stretching to the limit to win the race. That's how we're to love one another. One writer says this, A Christian's unselfish love and concern for others should be exercised to the point of sacrificially giving for others' welfare. Does that describe your type of love? Just think about it. Does that describe your type of love? And here's the thing. We're sinners. Remember that? Remember how sinners, because we're sinners, I said sin gets in the way of us loving as we should. But here's the deal. When you look at a diamond, right? Maybe you don't know this. When you're judging the quality of a diamond, there's four C's. I'm not going to talk about all of them. But one of them is clarity. One of them is clarity. When we talk about the clarity of a diamond, we mean how brilliantly it says... Hello! I'm expensive. You know, that's what we're talking about. Look at me. Bling. Bling, baby. Inside of diamonds are inclusions. Okay, so there's, they measure how many inclusions there are. And these things are little, look like specks or clouds. And they take away from the clarity and the brilliance of that diamond. And on the surface of a diamond, there can be blemishes. And all of these things, inclusions and blemishes, distort and destroy the beauty of... ...of a diamond. And obviously, the perfect diamond is one that has no inclusions and no blemishes... ...and along with some other things. But it can't have any of those things. Alright, listen. We are certainly not perfect diamonds. We are diamonds in the rough, and I mean real rough. Some were rougher than others, okay? But we're all in the rough, right? But God, through His Spirit, has given us the ability... ...to put away these inclusions and these blemishes... And begin to manifest love in a way that we go, wow! That is something else. That is some serious bling. I am attracted to that. I, I see that and I go, whoo! I'm just drawn to it. The light of God hits it and it goes, booyah! Right? Look at that love. That's what we are supposed to be. We are supposed to be fervently, zealously, Pursuing love for one another as Christians, which means we're going to have to put off sin. We're going to have to put off all of our stuff, our anger, our bitterness, our unwillingness to forgive, our resentment, our laziness. And we can do it because we have the power of the Holy Spirit, the divine Holy Spirit, God himself indwelling us that gives us the ability to love In that way, sacrificially, powerfully, in a way where people just stand back, and you will stand back and go, whoa, that's beautiful. That's brilliant. That's God. That's God. Let's pray. Father, may God make, um, Father, I say to you, Father, may you make, Through your power, through your word, through your divine spirit, the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of everyone who has truly placed their faith in your Son as the Christ. Father, I pray, I plead, you would make this a place where we earnestly and fervently love one another. For our good and your glory, God, And Father, I would also ask that your word would challenge those who are in the delusion that they have a relationship with God, but have no evidence of love in their life for one another. Not only that, but they are unwilling. It's not that they see this this defection and they want to repent of it, no, that's common of all Christians. We, we see where we don't love as we ought, and so we want to we repent of that. We want to confess it, and we want to put on the fruits of the Spirit and begin to walk in love. But the, the unbeliever, the one who really isn't a child of God, they don't even care. They care not for their brothers and sisters in Christ, and they care not that they care not. Father, would you convict them That they might see they don't really have a relationship with you. It's impossible. For these things cannot be separated. Love for you, faith in your son, cannot be separated for love for other Christians. According to your word. It is in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.